You have questions? We have answers. We're two Southern moms on the backside of raising kids. And we have some things to say. We've lived life, made mistakes, and learned some lessons. Join us for answers to the questions you just want to ask your mom. Welcome to another Just Ask Your Mom podcast. I'm Bonnie Blaylock. And I'm Renee Sproles. Well, if you listen to our podcast for any length of time, you know that both of us are fascinated by cultures outside the United States, especially when it comes to raising kids and how it's done elsewhere. Like how do mealtimes work? We've talked about how do you potty train elsewhere and what are the family dynamics and the meaning of home in other countries? Well, today we are lucky to have with us some special guests, Marissa Bailey, who's a friend of ours, and Caitlin Sproles, who happens to be married to my son. And they have some unique experience with living and raising kids in a completely foreign culture. Yeah. So Marissa, you and your husband, Aaron, are longtime missionaries right? Yes. They hail from Texas and West Virginia, and but they've raised their own family in Tanzania, which is in East Africa, and most recently, Mozambique. Well, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Can you tell us a little bit just about yourself? Yeah. My name is Marissa Bailey. I've been married to my husband, Aaron, for 24 years. Um, we've worked in Tanzania and Mozambique for 18 years. We have four children, ages 22, 16, almost 15, and nine. Wow. So how many were born in Africa? Uh, three. The last three were all born in Africa. Okay. Wow. That's a big spread. Yeah, it You'd is. Be perpetually young. <laughs> You'd be young forever. And Caitlin, um, who is my wonderful daughter-in-law, your parents went to live in Tanzania when you were how old? I was nine months old. And your two younger sisters were born there. That's right. Yeah. And how long were you all there? So we were on the mission field for about 15 years. So you were you were like 15 yeah, when y'all moved back. back. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. And your families are friends. Mm -hmm. So you guys were near each other when you were there. So it's going to be interesting to hear the perspective from a child who grew up there and the mom who was also parenting your friends there. So um, we want to just jump right in. Okay, so let's start with a question that we've been mulling over in our home series recently because I suspect that the two of you might have different answers than most of our U.S. listeners. So what does home mean to you? For me, I think it's the people. Um, I've moved a lot as a kid. And the longest place I've actually ever lived was in Mwanza, Tanzania, in one house in one place. Um, so for me, it's all about the people. If I'm on vacation, I'll say, hey, let's go home. And our kids are like, that's a hotel. So that for me, it's it's people. Yeah, I would say something similar, especially when you're younger. Well, my mom always said home is wherever our family is. And so to me, like that's still the definition that I hold to. You're not old enough to have spent half your life here yet. Mm -hmm. So you still have over half your life there. Yeah. Yeah. How I, does it feel? I would say like almost like when you move away from anywhere, it was a former home. And so there are people you know and love there, but also it's not quite your home all the way still. Your home is now where you are. So what was your home like there? Let's just talk about that and the difference between here in the United States and overseas 8,000 miles away in Tanzania. What's a typical home look like there? Different for sure. I think it takes a lot more work in some ways to run a home there. I remember watching my mom cook all of our food from scratch and they had to consider things that you don't have to hear like filtering our drinking water and hanging laundry up on the line outside. So it's, it's different, but you don't know any different. Yeah, our homes are typically cement, um, the running water and electricity when it works, not a lot of luxuries, but comfortable. And like Caitlin said, you're making everything from scratch and filtering your water. And and, and you you have walls uh, um, around your property or, or do you not? It could go either way. Okay. We've had like chain link fence. The, the place we live currently does have a cement wall. And wh why? A lot of it is just protection from thieves or keeping animals in or out. Oh, yeah, because it is Africa. So <laughs> Caitlin has the best stories whenever we're sitting around the dinner table and we, we tell like a childhood story, Caitlin trumps everyone not every time. No, <laughs> it's, it's very fun. No, you're not trying to one up. It's just the Africa stories are always better. So you've got like, what was the ant story? Oh, Siafu. <laughs> These like African biting ants. They're, they're next level. Sitting in a hill of those as a kid. 
It was sad. It was really sad. And the um and the frogs. Oh yeah, the what, frogs. What happened with the frogs? You and your sisters like gathered them up or something? Yeah, we did. We would get these tiny like Cheerio-sized frogs that would migrate like once a year or so. They'd all hop, hundreds, thousands of them, and we would gather them up in little cups and play with them. They were like the best little pet. I think they all died, but they were so fun. It's like the plagues. The yeah. ants, <laughs> the frogs, the locusts. Yeah. And, okay. and then don't forget the baboons. Oh, of course. And data especially. Yes, of course. And, the, and the, you said there was a ta- water tower or something that you had yeah. on your property you climbed? Yeah. Most houses there, at least the ones that we lived in, do have water towers because that's how you get water pressure there. So it has to like fall. Gravity takes it from the water tower into your house. It's still bad, but. <laughs> it's better than the alternative. Oh, no. And and so you you guys used that as a climbing gym. Right, yeah. Which terrified my mom sometimes, I think, but it was so fun. So that's really different. Very different. And that's your houses. So contrast that with the typical house of a native Tanzanian out in the village. Do they have running water and electricity and walled, walled compounds and all of that? And, and if not, what does that look like? Um, they do not typically have any of those things. Um, usually they have... Um, mud huts with thatch roofs and there's usually like three or four of them in a u-shaped or a square and so like the parents may have one and the little kids and then um, you know the older kids with maybe the goats or you know a sitting hen will have one and then it's multi-generational so you'll have other family members and so you'll have these different um, houses for the family which Caitlin and I were talking about this and mm-hmm. Emma the mm-hmm. other day about how they lived. And can you just reflect on how you, that seems actually maybe a little bit better than the way we do things here in the United States? Yeah, we were just talking about how like that intergenerational living, while it does have some interesting things that can come with it, can also provide a lot of benefits. And we don't do that here in the States. I feel like everybody's so isolated in their own individual houses. So especially like when you have kids, like just whenever Dottie Lou's over here with the whole family, it's been so fun to see that she goes from person to person to person and Emma gets a little bit of a break. Yeah, and that's what they're doing there, mm-hmm. right? The the grandparents or the auntie or whoever, right. and the cousins are all just running around, yeah, playing together. How fun! Mm-hmm. Sounds really fun. That sounds great. We wanted to live in a commune, didn't we, Bonnie? We did. Well, <laughs> it is fun. But I, I was just thinking about this uh, about eleven years ago. So you must have been ten or eleven, Caitlin, when mm-hmm. we came to visit you guys. Um, we went out to the villages and witnessed this, and we, I think I was with you guys, Marissa, and we were having dinner. They were serving us a meal. And we were sifting through the rice and picking out rocks before the, it could be cooked. Um, and one of the villages, there's probably a child, couldn't have been more than three years old, just walking around with a big machete. <laughs> and <laughs> nobody thought anything of it. <laughs> and my American parenting self was like, whoa, buddy, like, let me have that. Let me just take that from you. But it was no big deal for them. Yeah, that's one of our parenting jokes. In America, we're not helicopter parents. In Africa, we're definitely helicopter parents because we don't let our babies play with knives. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Well, Marissa, while you and Aaron chose to take this path and relocate about 8,000 miles away, your kids' experience, I would guess, is just a little bit different. So like most families, kids are long for the ride. Ours were too. When we moved to Indiana and North Carolina, they didn't really have a choice. So the term for kids like yours, kids like Caitlin and her sisters, is third culture kids. And it was a term coined by a U.S. sociologist, Ruth Hill Unseem, in the 1950s. So first culture means the culture you were born into. The second culture is the culture you arrive into. And the third culture is the term they use when you meld those two cultures. I think globalization has made these third culture kids more common. Yeah, so just to drop a couple of famous third culture kids, Barack Obama, who lived in Jakarta, in Seattle, in Kenya, and Hawaii, is definitely a third culture kid, and Kobe Bryant, um, who spent his childhood years in Reggio Emilia, Italy. I did not know he was fluent in Italian and had like a perfect Italian accent when he spoke Italian because that was where he was raised and his girls all had Italian, all have Italian names. So interesting. 
I didn't know that. So there's two American sociologists, David Pollock and Ruth Van Ricken, and they published a book called Third Culture Kids, Growing Up Among Worlds, way back in 1999. And although Pollock died in 2004, Van Ricken continues to research and lecture. And she says these kids are more likely to speak more than one language, have a broader worldview, and be more culturally aware. But she warns that life as a third culture kid can create a sense of rootlessness and restlessness where home is everywhere and nowhere. What do you think about that, Marissa? Um, I think that's very accurate. And it's one of the most important things for us as parents of third culture kids is um, really creating in them an identity in Christ, that that's who where they belong and that heaven is their home and that we should always feel as, as believers, we should always feel uncomfortable in this world um, because heaven is our home. And so I think that's, it's just very important for them because this is a huge struggle that third culture kids face. That's really good. So is there anything you do in particular? How do you integrate it into your home? You homeschool? We do homeschool. Yeah. It's a big topic that we're talking about all the time. And our kids, as teenagers have all attended a camp in, at Oklahoma Christian for third culture kids that also talks about this. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's just something that we always are talking about and trying to integrate into school, into life. Um, drip, so, drip, drip, yes. the information. That's mm-hmm. what the best salespeople do. <laughs> I know I'm married to one. <laughs> so how about you, Caitlin? Did you feel, were you more a part of one culture than another? You had one culture at home with your family and where they were from, but really the only culture you knew was Africa for many years. Yeah, that's right. And I would say just what Marissa said, which is like, you know, when th- whether you're there or whether you're here, um, it reminds you all these little moments where you don't fit in or don't understand what people are talking about. It reminds you that you are not, this world is not your home. And so that constant reminder really kind of like drives home, I think, like what Marissa was saying and like what Jesus talks about in the Bible that like, this isn't your home. Don't get too comfortable here. You would know that more than most people. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. A good reminder for those of us who are just sailing along and the same thing we've always known. Yeah, we get real comfortable here, especially in the U.S., I would say. I love Caitlin's perspectives on things because it does pop up every once in a while. Uh, you're, really, you, you're really quite the chameleon, so you don't, I don't ever really think about it. But every once in a while, you'll say something or observe something in a way that I don't. And it reminds me that like, oh, yeah, you've got a different perspective mm-hmm. here. Right. So Kate, you were uh, nine months old when you left, when your parents moved there and all your memories are of a home in Africa. So from a child's perspective, um, I guess we maybe sort of already answered this, but is, do you remember it as a jarring change at all? Or is this, this is just home because my parents are here? Uh, Yeah. The latter that this is home because you don't know any differently. So the little times that we would be on furlough and you get like glimpses of a different life and your parents would always talk about that as being home, I think that's probably more than anything what made us feel like, wait, this isn't home for them. It is just for my sisters and I. Mm, That's interesting. And so Marissa, your oldest was how old when you moved? He was four years old. So does he have any memory really of the U.S. as home? I don't think so. Not at all. Okay, so let's talk about furlough when you come back. Because when you come back on furlough, how many months is that usually, Marissa? Three to four months. Okay, was that the same for you, Caitlin? Mm -hmm, Same. Okay, so you're coming back to the U.S. And um, what – I think that would be exhausting. I have no no idea, but I think I would hate it. (laughs) So tell me the the benefits and the challenges about that, Marissa. So missionary life is often a paradox and furlough is the same. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. (laughs) I mean, that's really the best way to say it. Um, You're completely out of your routines and structures. You're living with different people. And then you're also doing all these fun things and eating all these different foods and um, having a great time. Uh, I think furlough was definitely more difficult for our introverted children. Um, than our extroverts, uh, just not having a lot of downtime or space. And especially the, oh, stand up missionary family. You know, they did not <laughs> love that or, and still don't. And one of the, the challenges, TCKs experience a lot of goodbyes. They experience more goodbyes by the age of 12 than most American adults experience in their lifetime. And so there's a lot of grief with furlough because there are a lot of hellos and a lot of goodbyes. So it's definitely a wow, paradox. That's really heavy. Man. So not just the friends that they've made or the church family, but your actual like grandparents, yes. cousins you, that you don't see any mm-hmm. other time. But then even even if you have FaceTime 
which I don't know, did you have FaceTime the whole time? Not when we initially went. And I know definitely not when the, not when the Gruens went because we had dial-up internet when we arrived. Oh, wow. So that must make a world of difference just to be able to see and talk to in real time. Yeah. But still, yeah. Did you feel that, the goodbyes? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things when we first came back to the States that always stood out to me is we went through this missionary reentry program that was kind of to help you adjust to life back in the States. And one of the things that they had to teach the kids is – you know, when you make a friend, you don't have to go as fast as you did before because it was like an instant friendship or no friendship at all type of situation. In many cases, they were like, you can actually take your time and go slow. And if you feel like you're not making friends, it's because you're coming on really strong because that's the only way that you were able to make friends before. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. I think that's something I know Alicia and the other moms on our team, we prayed about a lot for our kids is that they would not pull away from people because they were always saying goodbye, but they would continue to engage um, people that even were in their lives a short time, that it wouldn't become a hindrance or a, a block in their life, mm. that they were always saying goodbye. Yeah. I never thought about that aspect of it really. Yeah, because for us, we're we're here. We're like, oh, yeah, you're here. This is so fun, fun, fun for us. And we get to keep our all – we're sleeping in our beds and – Getting ready in our bathrooms, and we've got a, our closet full of our clothes. We're not living out of a suitcase. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're an adult experiencing this. And it's hard for you as an adult to experience it. But then you put that on, you know, a 12-year-old is what I'm thinking. Or the, those those dicey ages, those tricky ages, or a three-year-old even sometimes. And how much more difficult that must be. And, and another part of parenting that we don't even think about. Mm -mm. No, that's a whole nother layer of challenges. And honestly, that training you got, Caitlin, I can think of a bunch of Americans who could use that. <laughs> like, yeah, right. That's some good <laughs> psychology right there. Like, let's yeah. just learn how to make a friend. <laughs> Slowly. <Be> <laughs> Slowly, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I want to know just anecdotally, because those are fun, th fun things to hear. What, like, what do you miss about Africa when you're here or vice versa? Like, when you get back, you're like, oh, man, I wish I could have that or eat that or whatever? I think, you know, always the conveniences of just being able to go to like Walmart and get all the things that you just want. Um, and then, I mean, I don't, when I'm in, in Tanzania, Mozambique, I think about dinner and laundry all the time. And here I don't because I can put my laundry in at 10 PM and it can be done. Um, wow. So, so tell, how do you do laundry there? Um, well, you have to have water and you have to have electricity and you have to have sunshine. And those three sometimes are difficult to all get going at the same time. Right. So we do have a washing machine. We don't have a dryer. Um, so. Man. So we have a young friend. We're, we're looking at you, Cheyenne, who just married <laughs> and is in El Salvador and has a similar situation. So she... And, and laundry, is laundry difficult as a newlywed, Caitlin? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we joke about the this all the time. <laughs> with both of my children who married, like laundry seems to be like the final frontier of adulting. <laughs> it's like you can, you can like negotiate your way to everything, but the laundry is the last thing. Mm -hmm. So Shiana is the same way. I talked to her on the phone and she's like, I, we've got to check the weather and they hand wash like on a washboard in a cement sink their clothes unless they can like get to his parents house who have a washer maybe and then they can bring their wet clothes back and hang them on a line and they the line didn't hold the first time and they woke the next morning and it was all in the dirt and they had to start all over again and and I was like you will never complain about laundry here when you can move back will you and she's like absolutely not <laughs> it's just such a great perspective yeah. yeah. But what what about you, Caitlin? Were there things when you were here as a kid, you're like, oh, I missed this about Africa. I wish I, or or like, oh, I love this. When we go back, when we go back to the United States, we get fill in the blank, popsicles, ice cream. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What was it? Well, I mean, coming back to the States, of course, there was so much that I missed about being in the States because every furlough was like this glimpse into this like magical wonderland is what it seemed like to a kid. So for that reason, furloughs always stood out so much in my mind. But being here, of course, there's stuff that you miss there too. I really miss how slow the culture moves. And I think that that is something that I enjoyed about like Europe when we were there. America just tends to move at a really fast pace. But of course, I miss the people and the food there. They're rice and beans, wali namarage, so good. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about um, trying to find some of those ingredients 
from like international stores yeah. here and, and recreate it. It's kind of hard to do. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. So these cultures to me are just night and day in lots of ways. So how did you explain those differences to your kids, Marissa? I think we respected both cultures, um, but I think our kids and, and Caitlin was also raised in Mwanza. They were exposed to so many diverse cultures. They kind of grew up realizing that people do things differently. You know, our European friends were going to kiss our cheeks when they greet us. Our Tanzanian friends are going to greet us this way. Um, so I don't think they had as much struggle understanding, oh, this is how this happens in this country and this is how this happens in this country. Um, one of the struggles of TCKs is divided loyalties, um, which is not good for them, of just clinging to one country and disliking all others because they feel like they have to be loyal to this one. So we've really tried with our kids to just talk openly. You know, we love Tanzania, but there are things we don't. And we love America, and there are things we don't. Um, and we recently moved to Mozambique um, and just have talked through, you know, it's okay that it's not your home that you don't feel like it's your home, that you feel like Tanzania is your home. And it's okay. There are things you don't like, but there are things you do like, and maybe we need to list those every day. <laughs> and so we've tried to be um, a respecter of both cultures. Our kids are very involved in scouting. And so there's a lot of citizenship and duty to country. And that that's also helped a lot. That's cool that, that it's an international organization. So you found a troop over there. Um, we are actually a part of a virtual troop okay. of loan scouts. So of, of um, girls who would, who don't have a troop. So we meet virtually. Oh, cool. So it's really neat. Did you guys do that too? Some kind of organization that was uh, central? No, not really. I don't think they had as much opportunity for stuff like that when we were growing up. And I don't know. My family wasn't as involved in stuff like scouts or anything like that. We kind of, we had our own quieter hobbies. So arts, crafts, books, <laughs> that kind of thing. So that brings up an interesting question. So aside from the things that you did together, did you do, or maybe schooling, if you went to a particular international school or something, did was there anything that you did in particular to integrate into the culture there with friends or with sports or that kind of thing? Um, there were some other missionary kids that played sports at the international school, so that was helpful. Um, my sisters and I didn't, but it probably would have been helpful if we had, honestly. You, um, yeah, you haven't really described much about just a typical day in your life as a kid. Can you just walk us through, like, what would a normal day be like? Well, I mean, it was different, of course, depending on, like, what age that we were at, but we were homeschooled, and so most mornings I would wake up, and my mom, who is maybe one of the hardest working people I know, would already have breakfast ready and on the table, and again, it was all, like, cooked from scratch. It's not like she was just putting Cheerios on the table, <laughs> um, and so we would have breakfast. We would have our morning devotional. We would go and do our school for the day, and that was kind of like we had a certain amount we had to get done so we could do that as quickly or slowly as we wanted. You worked on commission, as I told my kids. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so we were very highly motivated to get out. And so we would do our school quickly, but mom made sure it wasn't so quickly we weren't learning. And then once we were done, we could go and play for the day. There, we didn't really do screens. We didn't really watch TV. We had the option to read books, play outside, play with our sisters. That was about it. I love that so much. You were one of the most creative people I know. And I know God gave you creativity, but I think it just blew up in the environment you were raised in because you were outside, right? Mm -hmm. Every day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm really grateful for like that part of my childhood because I don't know that I would have drawn on those skills so much had it not been one of the only things that I had to do for fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Boredom and imagination. Hand in hand, proven, <laughs> hands down. So uh, you had that in spades over there, and uh, mm -hmm. you can see the fruit of it. It's mm -hmm. just amazing. Yeah. So what is that similar to your typical day with your kids, Marissa? Yeah, it is. Um, they get up and, and do their schoolwork and, yeah, play. We don't have a lot of screen time. We maybe watch a movie once a week, maybe more during rainy season. Um, but we have a craft area that they can create or do things and – um, Caleb spends a lot of time outside with his dogs and that sort of thing. Yeah. That is what we have been just hitting a lot in a lot of episodes recently. Wouldn't you say, Bonnie, that with uh, Jamie Langley kind of started it in the outdoor <laughs> play. In it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but really, yeah, what that does to your brain, what that does to your imagination, um, your actual neural development and pathways that you're forming in your child from early on. 
self-esteem, what a child learns is important about him or herself and the world around them. It's just everything, everything. Stress, it de-stresses you to walk outside and put your feet in the grass and and all of that. So could you, do you notice, Marissa and Caitlin, when you would come back to visit the differences in how American parents were running their homes? Okay, I want you to drop some truth bombs on us. Um, no, it, you do. <laughs> I wish we could have started this like with an yeah. anonymous and like do the voice box where nobody can tell their voice because it's hard for you to see yourself, right? I mean, it's all hard for all of us to see ourselves. And so because you're back and forth, you can you can see us better than we can see ourselves, I think. What do you notice American parents doing? Just in general. Not, <laughs> not, don't have to name names. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess like one of the first things that comes to mind is I was always so shocked at how much my friends fought with their siblings. I was like in Tanzania, of course, we have our fights. Like that's just a natural part of being a kid. But also they were kind of the only people I had to play with. They had to be my friends. And so you really, you learn to get along. And So I was always like, you said what about your sister? That's a really great observation that like the negotiating and like just relationship building skills you got to develop, work it out, mm-hmm. work it out with your sibling. They're going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that is probably one of my, the things I love the most about raising my kids overseas is it allowed us as parents to step away and talk and decide what is cultural and what's biblical. And that's one of the the things of like, siblings don't have to fight. I love my teenagers. Um, it's not like they, they're perfect years, but there's not this all automatic, you know, I feel like here there can be this automatic, oh, teenagers are this. And parents and teenagers have uh, this kind of relationship. I think our kids notice the, ac- the free access to screens and video games that American kids have um, is one big thing. And that homes tend to be kid-centric. There's not a child in our house that is going to ask for an alternative meal to be put on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's oh, one. Can we just say amen, <laughs> amen, amen to that? So, that's just. <laughs> yes. I mean, I get it. I keep my granddaughter. I'm tired. <laughs> and you do want to turn on a video and it's like, no, it's an act of will on my part. No, we're not doing it. And it's harder because it's just her. I think when you have more children, the That's easier true. it gets, mm-hmm. which is also, I think, an American myth. We think the more children, the harder it gets. Yeah, I think that is the exact opposite. And I know even when we invite, you know, we all tend to have larger families. And so you can invite four more kids over and you're like, oh, this is so easy because they just entertain themselves. They're out playing and, and doing and no one's asking me to do something. Or 100%. I mean, Jordan Peterson said it, so it must be true. You know, they, <laughs> that in big families that just sociologically they've studied them and they're like, they kind of pair off families that have six, seven, eight children. They pair up, they get responsible for each other. The parents are still parenting, but it's just a whole lot less work than you might expect. You're just cooking more food and maybe doing more laundry. You know, I would say from my perspective, going to see how you live in your world over there and then watching you come back over here when I was in the middle of all my parenting stuff, I would say I noticed over there um, the independence that you, you and your children, you, Caitlin, and your children, Marissa, are independent, um, probably more so than mine were. Like, they weren't coming to me for being bored or, give, like, give me something to do or anything like that. Um, and you were, they were okay being alone. I can remember you just, like, Caitlin in a book, zoned out. Everybody else is, the world's going on around you. And you were fine with that. You were mm-hmm. fine with being alone. You were going to find something to do and, you know. Whatever. And also, yeah, whatever we eat, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that. We all know how much work it took because we're all involved in helping with it or gathering it or chopping it or doing something like that. And so there was always gratitude, I think, that, um, yeah, we don't, we're kind of miss here. Things are taken for granted here a lot more. Mm-hmm. I also think the tribe that our families worked with just placed such a high value on hospitality. Our kids grew up with that and um, just knowing they needed to eat the food that was that was provided for them in the village. And they're also an incredibly thankful people. I mean, to say you're welcome in Swahili, you say thank you for your thanks. 
So I think our kids tend to say thank you more just because, not because of our parenting, but because of growing up among the Sakuma people. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to, did all, do all the kids in your family speak another language? Yes. Our youngest, less just because we've been in transition. So he has some Swahili and he's picking up some Portuguese now. That's fantastic. And then Caitlin, I know you spoke Swahili. Mm-hmm. What about yeah. your sisters? Um, they do. Uh, but I think that having been back in the States for several years, it's kind of fading for all of us. And it's not like we use it very often. <laughs> so, Right. It's not uh, Spanish. No. So. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could trade it out. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, okay, we talked about how you were raised and how you did your families. But how, with the tribes that you worked with, how did they do their families? What did that look like? So grandparents are a huge part of the family structure and very important. Yes. Um, (laughs) Another interesting family structure is a mother's sisters are all mothers and a father's brothers are are all fathers. And they function within that relationship and are truly considered that's your mother. And it's kind of um, big mama, little mama, big daddy, little daddy. It's kind of the moniker given. Uh So, yeah. Is that where the It Takes a Village moniker thing comes from? Yeah. I I don't know, but I would imagine, yeah, everybody kind of pitches in. and So lots of children, fewer children. Lots of children. Okay. Dad's in charge. What are the roles? Really, mom runs the home and kind of the the children. There is, in Sukuma culture, hashikome, and that's around the fire, and that's where the knowledge is passed down. So dads to sons or grandfathers, you know, and and then there's a female fire. And so that's how knowledge is passed down. So are they more segregated by sex um, in that way? Yes, very much so. And um, do they consider, like, that little girls need to learn different things than little boys? Yes. Um, Little girls, you'll see a five-year-old can just cock out her hip and put a baby on it and tie it on her back. Um, and they're learning to cook and, and boys are farming and they're repairing things. And do they have any confusion about their gender? They do not. So a woman would only do a man's work. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm reasoning through this here. I don't know if like her husband died, like there, is there, so there are Yale studies um, that have shown that throughout all of civilization, there are certain jobs that men do and certain jobs that women do across the board, hunting and the heavy farming and warriors are, are, are male. Um, 99% of all the warriors throughout history are male. And then the, um, more fine work. So the garden, the, the gardening, smaller things, vegetables and things, and the women would take care of the children because they're like you were describing strapped on. So that limits what kind of work you can do. This is throughout all of human history. So in Africa, would a woman do a man's work? Would she even want to do a man's work? Would she say like, Oh no, I feel, I feel like I'm made to do that. I don't necessarily think so because there's so much work to do. Everybody kind of has their lane and works together. Women farm. I mean, they do, they carry incredible amounts of firewood on their head or water. Um, they do incredibly difficult jobs, but there tend to be like, Oh, this is, these are, these are her jobs. These are his jobs. And then a lot of times if something happens to the husband, a family member, or sometimes widows really suffer, um, because they, they, they lose their land or the ability to do that. So it really is just expedient mm-hmm. the way they divide the work. Yes. There's none of this. Um, I feel called to do this thing or like we, like we say here, I feel called. This is my calling. Or if that's a luxury to say that. Yes. I think yeah. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. So children in the hierarchy of an African family, they're not child centered families. You said, yeah, no, they are not. So are they seen and not heard or do they involve them in the life of the, like, what does it look like? Children are so beloved, but they are seen and not heard. Um, I don't think parents communicate, you know, because we're telling our kids so-and-so is coming for dinner. Afro- uh, Tanzanian parents aren't going to tell in the village. They're not going to communicate those type of things um, with their kids. Um, the kids do work as soon as, you know, even a two-year-old will have a spoon and is pretending to cook, you know. So as they are able to do certain tasks, they, they, they do those tasks. 
Um, it is, you know, most Tanzanian parents really want an education for their children. And so they're able to send their kids to school. Then that's, they do that. And do both boys and girls go? Yes. Um, and this is kind of a change that we've seen in culture recently that's been exciting is people are excited for their boys and their girls. So the way the school structure is, you have to pass to go on. And if you don't pass, you're done. Um, and so a family, a lot of times, if they have a child that's high, better than average in school, they'll pull their resources to send that child to a, a better school. Um, and so if it's a girl, they'll send the girl where I know one of my good friends in the village, um, when we started teaching together, I was like, Oh, you're an amazing teacher. And her husband said, yeah, she was so smart. She did really well in school, but she's a girl. So her family didn't send her on. Um, so that is changing. Mm -hmm. um, in Tanzania. So when you go out to your, to the villages, your, your primary job there was a mission field, right? So you're teaching about the good news of Christ and the gospel, maybe how church structure, what that looks like, what, what it looks like in families and things like that. Are you also teaching other things, practical health kind of things? Yes. I've done a lot of water sanitation, hygiene, nutrition, um, kitchen gardens. Our ladies asked, they wanted to know how to bake a cake. Um, so that they could bake a cake for celebrations or sell uh, sell cakes. And so we used the Depression era cakes, the wacky cakes recipes. What is that? Um, they have like no eggs or milk. They're just a really simple recipe. And so we've done cake baking. Our oldest entree actually is taught embroidery out in the, in the village. And so, yeah. And sometimes it's just like people will say, hey, we want to talk about this. And, and so we'll, we'll teach on that. Okay, so besides the geography and the infrastructure differences there, both of your families, let's just say, are very white. So in the marketplace or the villages, it was pretty obvious one of these things is not like the others. So how did you address that as a family? Is that more of a culture umbrella? Was it an issue at all? What do you think, Caitlin? I don't think it was an issue. I think it was just an interesting difference. And so for one thing, we always stood out so much. That kind of played into the independence thing where my mom – was not concerned about us wandering away, going missing. We would kind of just go where we wanted to. She was like, I'm not worried. You stand out so much. <laughs> but I do think like, uh, especially when you went out to the village, the kids there were like very interested in how you looked so different from them. They would pull my hair <laughs> just because it's such a different texture. Um, but I think in the end, it was a really cool experience for both of us to kind of like learn those differences and like appreciate them. Yeah, I don't know if I have a good answer because Erin and I actually were talking about this. Our kids didn't seem to notice for a really long time. Like one day we're having a family that had just moved to town over and they had adopted daughters from Congo and then biological daughters. So we just kind of said, oh, this family's coming. They have some adopted children and biological children. And we, they came over, we had a great time, they left. And our kids were like, so which ones were biological and which ones were adopted? <laughs> and we were like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Um, and like our daughter, Raina, she had a friend, Tanzanian friend adopted by a white family. And I mean, again, we're not talking five, we're talking more 10, 11, 12. Um, why doesn't she look so much like her mom? But I mean, we don't look like you. And then we've seen more, more noticing, but still, um, the Swahili word for white person is Mzungu. So our kids will call white tourists Mzungu, but they will not refer to themselves that way or their expat friends. So it's definitely like an other, and they don't feel the other hmm. very much. So I don't, I don't know what they see, honestly. And I haven't, you know, talked about it with them because I just want it to be, I just want them to be who they are. Um, so it just hasn't really been a big deal. Hmm. They don't notice it even when they come back to the U.S. when you're the majority. Uh, I think we've noticed they definitely are not as comfortable in all white settings. They definitely prefer to be in more diverse situations. Makes sense. That's yeah. so beautiful, really. I love that. Okay, so we've touched on this briefly. Um, you you homeschool, Marissa. Have you homeschooled the whole time you've been there? Yes, I have. And then, Caitlin, you went to an international school briefly, right? Briefly, yeah. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, on the one hand, I think it was a cool experience because – there weren't just Tanzanian kids there, but kids from England, South Africa, Australia, the United States. And so it was really like this combination of 
all of these different cultures um, in a really cool way. Lots of Indian kids too, actually. And it was always so interesting to like notice all the differences and kind of get some of those cultural traits from one another. I know a lot of the other missionary kids on the team used to come home and they would have an Indian accent or an English accent. British. That's cool. Yes. I love yeah. that. That would be me. If that was me, that would be me. Yeah, that's your dream. It would totally be me. So now that you've been back here, you came back when you were 15. So you did some high school mm-hmm. here in a homeschool setting, right? still yeah. a co-op kind of setting. And then you've graduated from college, mm-hmm. right? So did you have you noticed any advantages or deficits from the way that you were schooled here? You've made it all the way through the U.S. system mm-hmm. now. It wasn't any big deal for you. Yeah, I think I am really grateful that I was homeschooled because one of the main benefits is that if there was ever something we struggled with, whether we were homeschooling there or here, that we could stop and focus on that subject until we got it. And then we would move on. And I don't know that you have that benefit in a, like a traditional school setting. So while there are some gaps, and I think that there will be gaps in your education, like no matter what, I never found that, um, you know, I was behind as compared to the average college student when I was in college. So it was it was a good experience. Okay. And that was even with a life, a childhood with no screens. Yes. You caught yes, right yeah. up. And this listen, this was the graphic design program. So I kind of went straight from under a rock in Africa to, here you go, use this computer software, have fun. And it was like, it was like drinking from a fire hose at first. I just felt so silly. But you know, you learn it so fast. Mm-hmm. You're not missing out on anything as a kid. All right, moms, you heard it from an adult who was raised without screens. She did great in college. She didn't have to have it in high school even, really. No, yeah. Okay. I love that. Yep. How about you, Marissa? Have, when you come back on furlough, do your kids continue to go to school here? Do you Have they been in American schools ever? They, I think um, our girls went to Sunshine School at North Boulevard for a few months, and Caleb went to kindergarten for a semester um, in America. Otherwise, they've been homeschooled. Okay. And then Caleb came – no, who's your oldest? Trey, Trey. came back to do school college here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's at Hardy University and he hasn't had any problems. He has said, oh, it's so nice to go to a class where the professor knows what they're talking about. You know, they're not looking it up on YouTube. They actually have studied the subject. (laughs) As opposed to like teaching themselves in homeschooling? Yes. Yeah. Or us being like, wait a second. Yeah. Let me, let me just figure (laughs) that out. Yeah. So what are you glad that you missed out on, Caitlin, now that you've lived in America through high school and college and are married? You've seen American families. What are you glad you missed by living in Africa? Um, I briefly touched on it earlier, but I really appreciate having been raised in a slower paced culture because I really felt like I got to kind of take my time and enjoy just being a kid in a lot of ways. So you were a kid in America, right, Marissa, growing up? So what are you glad that um, your kids get to experience as third culture kids? Well, we um, learned to parent in Africa as well. So we kind of were growing up as adults with our kids. I think I love the communal aspect. Again, the culture we work with has such a high respect for elders um, and has such a high hospitality. I think our kids have learned so much about that. Um, Our kids are highly flexible. Um, that's one of the things I've, I've noticed just when my, my parents passed away recently and we were just cleaning out and doing all this. And I just, I think it hit me one day, my kids have not complained, not one time. Um, they're just, they tend to be go with the flow. You know, I don't know. Well, we had, um, in Wanza a swimming pool we could go to, you might show up and it was closed or it was empty. And so like, there's always this expectation that whatever you're going to do is not going to work out. Hold your plans loosely. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And again, I think I said earlier, just the space to think about the values we had as parents. Were they American culture or were they biblical culture? Um, Yeah, we've talked about that before on here. Uh, You know that you're immersed in your culture when you say something like, when should my kid do that? Not if my kid should do that, you know? And so like we talk about that with screens uh, or the cell phone. It's I was asking myself the question, when do my kids get a cell phone? When is the wise age? I never asked myself if my kids should have a cell phone at all. And so I think that's really cool that you're able to see. You just get, you you get a bird's eye view. So did your, do your kids get a say in any of it now that they're older and you're, maybe you have schooling options or 
whether they come back to the U.S. to go to college or whether they go somewhere else to go to college, is it is it flexible at all for them now that they're older? Yeah, it is. We, our family has always integrated our life and ministry. So our kids have always been a part of our work and life. And they've always had a say. And we tend to talk about everything in our family, um, everyone's emotions, for sure. And so, yeah, our whole time in Tanzania and we, our kids had – they could have gone to an international school. Um, and we didn't. We were always listening you know, what they needed or if that was a better option for them. Um, we have joined a team in Mozambique that they have a team school. And so our kids wanted to go and we did that and it wasn't a good fit. And then they didn't want to do that anymore. So we're back to homeschooling. And for us, when my dad passed away, we planned to move back to the States um, to be near my mom. And then she passed away and it was our kids who said, do we have to do this? Can we, do we have to move to America? Is there another option? And so, yeah, our kids, you know, definitely have input. And our oldest daughter, you know, with her high school years, she's she has a lot. She's making a lot of the decisions as far as like a gap year or, you know, what colleges she wants to look at or what she wants to study to reach her goals. Do you consider yourself now like a third culture parent? Like you, you've been there a long time. Yes, I do. And I'm actually a domestic TCK. Um, I grew up in two very different cultures in America, um, in Texas and in West Virginia and Appalachia. So, but yeah, I definitely, I think we, as adults, we're third culture adults. And yeah, I would feel, I, I would imagine that there would be just times you just don't feel at home. Yes, especially I think the longer we're overseas and American culture is changing so rapidly now. Um, when we come back, you know, even like the at a fast food restaurant, the Coke machines that have all the choices and it's like a computer screen, you're just like, I don't know what what we're doing. I don't know. Um, so there's a lot of things I think in the in the last few years that it's it's definitely challenging to know what to say or what to do. Um, we have on the teams that we've been a part of, um, friends that we've had very open discussions and disagreements even about things. We like to talk over issues. And, you know, it feels like right now in America, that's not really welcome. And so we often are like, oh, we don't know when to engage or when to share or when not to. Um, so, yeah. We definitely that's feel so interesting. I can notice that, Bonnie. Yeah. And the speed of the culture, because you're not seeing it on a daily basis, just like when you, you know, you see your kids and they just they seem like your kids. And then the grandparent comes home. Oh, you've grown three inches. It's just like that. You can see the speed of our culture. That's so interesting that it's observable in short periods of time. That's actually a little scary. So Kate, I wanted to ask you, did you feel like you had input as you grew older in what your family did and what your family dynamics were? You had an interesting high school Mm -hmm. year. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I think, um, again, it depended on what age we were. Of course, they're not going to be like to your five-year-old, do you want to stay here? Do you want to do something else? (laughs) Sure. So all of that aside, I think like once I got to high school, we did have a little bit more input. But to some extent, it was kind of still, you know, my dad makes the decisions, mom agrees, and we go where we need to go. And so like Marissa said earlier, that does create a lot of flexibility, which I'm grateful for. But also now that I'm adult, an adult, it gives me a lot of gratitude. Like I can make those decisions and it, it kind of, you appreciate it because it's fun. But one thing that my parents did uh, let us have a lot of input on is when we first moved back to the United States, um, my sisters and I really wanted to stay in Murfreesboro because that was all that we knew. That was where we would come back on furlough. So the little tiny bit of the states that we were aware of was in Murfreesboro. And so we begged to stay there. We begged to stay with our church friends there. And um, my parents made the decision um, based on our input that we would stay there. Um, And so they sacrificed a lot in order to be able to do that. They lived on savings for quite a while because my dad was still looking for a job here. And um, so I am so appreciative that they did that because it allowed me some time and my sisters too to kind of acclimate to the States in a more like familiar environment. I'm grateful because you in Houston. Yes. (laughs) That's you. When you were here. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But Um, then they moved. Right. Yeah. And you didn't. No. So my uh, senior year of high school, my dad got a job for a church in Oregon, the opposite side of the country. And 
I told my mom, I was like, I, I don't want to move again. I've been moving my whole life and I want to go to school here. I want to stay here. And I was 17. So I'm sure that was difficult to hear from your 17 year old. But she said, okay, we trust you and we're going to leave you here. And I lived with a mentor and really good older friend of mine named Bobby Solly, who was so gracious to have me in her home. Um, Check out our reading to your kids episode. Yes. She's our reading expert. Yes. I just love Bobby. Um, and so, yeah, I did stay here. And my parents, looking back, that must have been really difficult for them to just leave me here. But I'm so grateful they did. And Houston and I started dating. I got close with the Sproles family because of that. And so it was a great experience. But I did have a lot of input on that one. Yeah. I don't think a lot of American parents maybe would be super comfortable with that mm-hmm. if they hadn't lived the life that you all lived. Yeah. So dating culture, I'm sure, is totally shocking to a third culture kid. Right, mm-hmm. Caitlin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, because it's almost non-existent over there unless you're in a very different type of situation but like growing up on a team so those kids are so close to them they're like siblings you wouldn't even think about dating them necessarily yeah they're like your brothers right yeah 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 so coming back to the states and like talking to other girls at age 15 it was like they've already had eight crushes in the same year and they've already dated somebody and what does that even mean when you're 15 Mm -hmm. i don't know Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's different. It's it seems like a lot of emotional wasted emotional energy. Yeah. On American kids' parts. Yeah. You're nodding your head, Marissa. Would you agree? Yes, I would completely agree. It just seems like a little bit of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And I think even some of our, our older team kids have commented, um, wow, you don't even know who you are. Why aren't you just having fun? It seems like you're not having fun when you're, you know, in some of these relationships in high school. Um, and like Caitlin said, our kids all kind of consider themselves like cousins. So there wasn't a lot of dating. Mm-hmm. And I think, I know at MTI that recently they covered this, I know you went as well, of the way third culture kids make friends, the dating scene is difficult um, because their natural tendency um, seems maybe romantic at certain ages when they're just really wanting to be friends. Mm-hmm. And it is the thing like Caitlin is friends with our son, Trey and Matthew, that was, there was never any consideration that there was a, a dating aspect to that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they are, you know, meet someone of the opposite gender and are just like, oh, we're friends. And it doesn't occur to them that this can be romantic or can be seen that way. Mm-hmm. And and did you know what the etiquette was, Caitlin, when you got here? I guess you probably didn't unless your parents <laughs> no. told you. Yeah, my parents were basically like no dating right now, which I think most parents... <laughs> their 15 year old are but um that gave me some time to kind of like figure things out and I some of this is just personality too but I kind of hung back in high school and watched all of my girlfriends go through it I was like yeah yeah I'm good thanks hard pass (laughs) don't want to do that yeah Mm -hmm. so what what did you do or what are you going to do with your kids Marissa in terms of teaching them this stuff um, well, we try to talk about it and, you know, we're trying to look at different books and different resources to discuss it. I mean, the one thing, you know, you asked Caitlin, did her parents talk to her about dating? We don't know. We don't, we don't understand the current rules of dating, um, to kind of pass that on to our kids. So trying to, you know, help them access that information or, or try to figure it out ourselves. But, um, you know, talking about boundaries and purity and, um, what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Is important. Yeah, we, I mean, we did that with ours. We just said, as you interact with the opposite sex and you are attracted to people, we would encourage you to actually make a list, an actual list, type it in your phone or write it on a piece of paper about what you're liking so that you are actually aware of what you're drawn to. And then as you start to see things you don't like, make note of those too <laughs> so that you're aware like, oh, I don't really like that he's not a very good listener or she gets angry really too easily or that kind of thing so that you have some self-awareness. But yeah, there's some great resources. One of my favorite ones, we should put this in the show notes was dating, courting and choosing a mate. And we did not do courting by the way we homeschooled, but we did not do courting (laughs) just to make that clear. And this book was not proposing that you court. It was, I loved how it talked about um, developing a relationship with someone. And it was, it was this, use the model of a square and you want to 
bring all the sides of the square in equally. So you don't want to get too physical too fast without also um, having like the friendship and the intellect and, and the other parts of the relationship also moving in at equal speed or pace. And I was like, that's just actually kind of seems like a timeless, helpful mm-hmm. piece of advice. Mm-hmm. I think that would be one of the advantages. We've talked about some of the disadvantages and advantages or deficits that you have gotten going from culture to culture. I think that's definitely an advantage um, that you're experiencing is this. You're not in any rush to get to whatever it is uh, at the end of a relationship or to have serial relationships or to just, you know, flip through the deck constantly because you don't know the end. What's the end of that? Um, So you're free to just take your time and whatever. Although I know there's marriage proposals, right? Yes. They offer offer you a, a camel or a goat. Guys, guys, I'm worth five cows. See, Did you know, yeah. we knew right. you're a very valuable Kate. I know it's great. And in Mozambique, um, they don't have a bride price. In Tanzania, they do. And so, in Mozambique, if someone asks to marry my daughters, I just say, "Oh no, you don't have a bride price. We're going to do that in Tanzania, where oh. there's a bride price." Uh. They're like, "Oh yeah, uh. easy deflection. That's yeah. nice. We could try that here too, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure that's going to work. Your oldest one." who's here is he just figuring it out is he, observing like you did Kate he is um you you said something earlier about Caitlin kind of being a chameleon TCK said to be chameleons a little bit and try to to figure it out and you know just having great friends who are willing to give advice or insights into what what's happening yeah did you have that Caitlin have friends help you like figure it out um, I had friends who would have liked to help me figure it out. I, d- I didn't like to talk to them about that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, not because I didn't value their opinion, but because I wanted advice from older people like my parents. So that's also probably third culture. I like that because now I get to give you all my advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So what are the tricky things for your kids going back and forth? from one culture to the next. One of the funny things with our kids coming to the States from Africa is just the differences in culture. And as parents, we were often, we like switch back to our American brain, you know? And so like our kids are wanting to run around a restaurant and we're like, why would you run around a restaurant? Well, all of our restaurants in Tanzania are outside where and the kids are running around, you know? So our kids are like, you know, or don't talk to strangers. We're in Tanzania. We're like, you better talk to strangers. You better greet that person. Um, and the ground. Uh, Paul Hebert has some really interesting uh, information about how different cultures view the ground. And so in, in Mozambique, you know, in Tanzania, we sit on the ground for church. We sit on the ground in homes. We sit on the ground in the village. And so our kids come here. They're in Walmart. And they sit on the ground. We're like, why are you sitting on the ground? It's dirty. And they're like, I don't. I don't understand. <laughs> Or just like, you know, you, you can drink the water, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And my funniest, I think, is um, for teenagers, especially when you greet someone in Tanzania, one, an older person, you initiate the greeting as a younger person. It's a very limp handshake and you don't look them in the eye. Oh, it's so disrespectful different. to look them in the eye. Oh. Um, it's like you're, you think they're deceitful or they're lying to you. And so like for like Trey in Texas, what is the most respectful greeting? A firm handshake and looking someone in the eye. So I would watch mm-hmm. our kids like, you know, look someone in the eye and look away, look them in the eye, kind of <laughs> look away. And, um, so yeah, there are just lots of little things like that for our kids of, you know, coming back and forth between cultures and trying to to navigate them. Our um, daughter, Raina, when she was like four or five, automatic doors were her thing. And she would just, every store, she would fling her arms wide and so, say, automatic. <laughs> so, yeah. It was magic. Aww, so yeah. I don't know if you all had those same experiences. Oh, yeah. yeah, for yeah. sure. Like taking your shoes off. In Tanzania, you take your shoes off when you enter someone's home. It's a sign of respect. You're not tracking dirt into their home. And so to this day, I'm still more comfortable with my shoes off. And uh, Renee's dad, every Sunday lunch, likes to give me a hard time because I take my shoes off as soon as I come in the house. (laughs) He does. He doesn't get it. No. He doesn't get it. (laughs) So when all is said and done, I guess kids are kids, really, the world over. And we all, they all need the same things, safety, provision, education, belonging. And they are all going to have similar developmental changes and challenges. They all go through toddlerhood. They all go through puberty, right? All of those things. 
You had a quote here, Renee, from Maya Angelou. I long, as does every human being, to be at home wherever I find myself. And I think third culture kids and your families just are really great examples of that. I think you are flexible and you, you're just at home anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said at the beginning, Marissa, home is where your, your family is. Well, thanks so much for being here to, with us today, guys. This was a really interesting conversation. Yeah. It was very it was fun. Funny. It was so it was fun, fun stuff. Thank you for having us. Okay, so you can find the transcript of our conversation on our website at justaskyourmom.com and take five seconds to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us and share us with your friends. That's how we actually gain the most listeners. Right, and send us your topic suggestions too. We love to incorporate those. Send them to justaskyourmompodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time on Just Just Ask Ask Your Mom. Mom.